Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. A sober warning, Goldman Sachs predicting zero U.S. earnings growth in 2020 if the virus spreads. Coronavirus controls? Well, that's the message from China as cases outside Asia rise and viral confusion. Questions remain after President Trump announces the White House's plan to tackle the crisis. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. Great to have you with me as we try to bring you up to speed with the developments around the world on the coronavirus outbreak. For now, I'll bring it back to markets as always at this moment and show you what we're seeing for futures. And as you can see, no relief in sight at this moment. We're looking at pre-market losses of more than 1%, adding to the losses that we saw yesterday. It was a mixed session, though, and I should point this out. U.S. stocks were higher until we got word of a coronavirus case of unknown origin in California late in the day. And that was enough to take the Dow and the S&P closer to correction territory. We're down around 8% for most recent highs, heading for the worst week of trading for U.S. stocks since the financial crisis. I'm just looking at the numbers here, and I think we could open actually in correction territory for the Dow if we open up like this, so down more than 10% from recent highs. Not helped, of course, all of this by more corporate warnings about the risks. Microsoft among the largest. Also key today, as I've mentioned, though, analysts at Goldman Sachs warning that we could see zero U.S. earnings growth in 2020. Their assumption to make this point is that the virus will be widespread. We'll give you the context in just a few moments. But I do think, just to take a pause here, UBS made a very valid point today, and they said fear is one of the main threats to economic growth at this moment, judging the appropriate response here for all businesses, individuals, very difficult. What about the European session? Well, I can tell you it's painful. Germany and France, stock markets there down over 3%. In Asia, a contrast, though. We did see some buying in China and Hong Kong, which stood out to me, but South Korea suffered. The central bank there holding rates steady, as we've discussed on the show already this week, when we've got rates so low already. Does it make sense to lower them further here or do governments need to take action? Let's get right to the drivers. I want to bring you up to speed with the latest developments. A Chinese health expert saying the coronavirus in China will be under control by April, adding that the outbreak peaked on February 15th. 
Meanwhile, outside of China, cases continue to multiply, sparking a range of emergency measures. In South Korea, joint U.S. military drills have been cancelled as both armies report cases. Japan's prime minister wants to close all schools until April. In Saudi Arabia, they've suspended pilgrimages to Mecca and Medina. Meanwhile, in the United States, as I mentioned, we've had a report of the first case of community spread. So a patient who's not been in a high-risk area or had known exposure to an infected person. I'll bring it back to that warning from Goldman Sachs now too. Analysts there saying corporate America's profit growth could be zero for all of 2020. Claire Sebastian joins us now with all the details. A sobering warning here, Claire, but we are talking about growth in earnings, not outright. But what else do they have to say and what are the assumptions, the assumptions here that they're making to, to make this call? Yeah, Julia, I think the key to understanding this is that 2019 earnings were not that great. So 2020 mm. was supposed to be a rebound year. That is some of the assumption that, that was baked into the recent rises uh, in the market that we've seen. So Goldman Sachs pouring cold water on that. They acknowledge, by the way, that they're ahead of the pack in doing this. They say in the report that consensus estimates still are looking at a 7% rise uh, in earnings in the S&P 500 for the year. But, but what is their base case scenario? Well, that is that the virus becomes widespread. They've also baked in a severe slowdown in economic activity in China, supply and demand factors, uh, which we've seen reported by various companies. They say that U.S. economic activity will slow in the first half, but, but should pick up uh, a bit in the second half. And one thing I think is really important to note, uh, in their forecast, they also factor in elevated uncertainty. That, as we know, can be corrosive to, to business investment and to economic activity as a whole. So I think it's interesting that they noted that. Now, in their forecast, uh, in their, their baseline forecast, they're not saying that there'll be a U.S. recession as of yet. If things end up being much worse than expected, that is possible. But the baseline forecast is not for a U.S. recession. And they are advising clients, Julia, uh, to, to be defensive in how they buy stocks, to move into things like utilities and consumer staples, uh, and be a bit careful with, with how they act in the stock market at the moment. I think that's reflecting in the market activity that we're seeing. Yeah, and it was quite interesting as well as I was pouring over some of the details here, their prediction on the path of the S&P 500 here, near term pulling back to 2,900, but year end, they have got it significantly higher again at 3,400, significantly on a relative basis, I mean. Right. So, I mean, you know, they, they say, as I said, that the first half will be pretty bleak and then we should see a recovery in the second half. Don't forget, there are other factors in that, which, which analysts have been pointing out to me, that, that, for example, the Boeing 737 MAX should return to the skies uh, in the second half. But, but companies, Julia, are, are, are getting serious about this. We've had a number of warnings uh, this morning, and these are big companies. Microsoft became the second trillion dollar company to warn that it was going to miss its revenue forecast. That is mainly driven by supply factors. They say that they're, they're, the factory activity when it comes to manufacturing the Surface and Windows laptops is not returning as quickly as possible. We, all have, we also have the world's biggest brewer, AB InBev, saying this has already hit them in the first two months of the year. We've got Marriott, the world's biggest hotel chain, also warning this is costing them uh, a lot of money. So this is hitting big, big multinational companies across a variety of sectors. Uh, and I think that is also equally sobering as these, uh, these big, big number reports from the likes of Goldman Sachs. Yeah, we're certainly starting to build a picture here. And to your point, some of these big tech giants like Microsoft have been a real pillar of support to markets here. So when they're revising lower their expectations and guidance, the markets take a hit. Claire Sebastian, 
Great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on, because in the United States, President Trump was playing down the risks associated with the coronavirus spread around the world and into the United States in a press conference yesterday. He's also put Vice President Mike Pence in charge of tackling the operations here in the country. Here's Joe Johns with all the details. President Trump downplaying the threat of coronavirus in the United States. Because of all we've done, the risk to the American people remains very low. Despite experts in the CDC warning the threat will only get worse before it gets better. I don't think it's inevitable. It probably will. It possibly will. It could be at a very small level or it could be at a larger level. Whatever happens, we're totally prepared. Surrounded by top health officials, President Trump again softening the warnings from those experts. In just the course of the last couple of minutes, you have disputed some of what the officials that are working in your administration behind you have said about the risk of coronavirus and its spread. Do you trust your health officials to give you good information or do you trust your own instincts? I don't think I have. They've said it could be worse, and I've said it could be worse, too. I also think, no, I don't think it's inevitable. Earlier Wednesday, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar announced a 15th person tested positive for coronavirus in California. And just hours after the rare White House briefing, the CDC said that case could be the first in the U.S. of a patient who had not traveled to the affected areas or had apparently not had exposure to another known patient. The administration has come under fire this week after cabinet officials received a bipartisan grilling on Capitol Hill, arguing they are ill-prepared to combat an outbreak in the U.S. Still, President Trump appeared to claim partial credit for the limited number of confirmed cases in the country. If you compare it to the response to previous situations like this, it's inadequate. And the most dangerous thing is trying to happy talk a, a, a national health emergency because it suits some personal or political goal or because you're worried about the stock market. The president also announced Vice President Mike Pence will lead the administration's response. The Washington Post, citing five sources familiar with the situation, reports Azar was caught off guard by the announcement. Sources tell CNN the president has privately expressed frustration with Azar, blaming him for not keeping him updated enough. It's unclear who's really in charge. I'm still chairman of the task force. So you don't so, feel like you're being replaced? Not in the least. And the CDC has confirmed the first coronavirus case of unknown origin. I want to get some explanation here, though, for you. Uh, CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joins us now. Um, Sanjay, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for, uh, for being here. I think a lot of people will have walked away from that deeply confused. And there is a, a fine line here between inciting panic, but also making sure that people are aware and prepared. Can you cut through the noise for us? What do we need to focus on here and what needs to be done? Well, you know, with regard to this 15th patient, part of the reason that's getting so much attention, this patient's getting so much attention, is because uh, if you look at these other patients, the 14 patients, they had all uh, contracted this virus because of travel-related or because uh, they were the spouses of someone who was known to be infected. 45 patients, they came from that cruise ship over in Japan. This 15th patient now, uh, out of you know, 14 plus now this additional one, 15th patient, we don't know exactly how this patient contracted the virus. There's no relevant travel history. There's no known exposure to someone who is carrying the virus. And Julia, th this, this means that this patient could possibly represent community spread, meaning the virus is now in the community, circulating among people. 
Many of those people may not know that they have the uh, infection. They may not have any symptoms whatsoever. That's sort of the definition of community spread. And then you have one person who transmits it to a two or three other people, then those people transmit it to two or three either uh, other people each, and, and so forth. That's what community spread is. So that, that was a really relevant point. And interestingly, it sounds like the, the health officials knew about this before the press conference, did not mention it during the press conference, uh, which you know would have been important to know because it's such a significant development. As far as cutting through the noise, the risk still in places like the United States where I am is, is still low. Uh, you know, you, you still have only documented uh, 60 patients, 61 patients now who, I'm sorry, 60 patients who have the, the documented infection. But it is possible now, given this community spread, there could be more people out there who are carrying the virus, the vast majority of whom, 80% of whom, may never have any symptoms or only have minimal symptoms. So that, that's sort of the picture of things in many places now around the world, including here. Yeah, it's such important context. I mean, President Trump also said yesterday five of those 15 people have now recovered. Do we also need to be talking about recovery rates here and simply the fact that there are huge populations in all of these nations around the world and we're still only, and I say it cautiously, talking about sort of 86,000 globally. Context here key, surely. No question. I mean, we're starting to get a better picture of, of what exactly happens to someone who gets infected with the coronavirus. And keep in mind, we're talking about something that two months ago, two and a half months ago, we, did had, we had no knowledge of, never seen it before in human beings. So this is, that's, that's part of what happens with a novel virus. We're learning as we go along. You know, Julia, part of the reason public health officials pay so much attention to a novel virus, it means that we have not, our bodies have never seen this virus before and therefore our immune systems don't really know how to fight it. With most other pathogens, the flu pathogens, the common cold pathogens, we have some native immunity to that. Our body can sort of fight that off unless we are already sick or have a compromised immune system. With this virus, we really can't do that. Despite that, again, if there's some good news here, it is that the vast majority of people, uh, even with this new virus exposure, don't seem to get, really get that sick. Uh, but about 2% of people do get sick and die from this, that, according to some of the largest studies. With flu, which is something that people are much more familiar with, uh, you get millions of people infected around the world every year. 0.1% of those people will die of flu. With this coronavirus, thankfully, number is much smaller but 2% of people who become infected with this will die of that infection. So that's, that's a 20-fold difference. And again, that's part of the reason public health officials really want to better understand the virus and obviously slow down the rate at which it spreads. Dr. Gupta, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for uh, your uh, perspective here. Much needed, I yeah. think. All right, let's move on. Italy at the heart of the European outbreak that has spread to 11 countries there now. With the government working on a recovery plan to contain the economic fallout too. Melissa Bell is in Florence once again for us. Melissa, great to have you with us. What more do we know about this plan perhaps to support the economy and uh, further efforts to contain the virus spread? 
Well, we're waiting to hear, Julia. We've heard from uh, the Italian health minister speaking in front of the Italian parliament this morning about the fact that the government was working on this extraordinary plan to help contain the coronavirus and to support the Italian economy. So we await the details of that. But in the meantime, of course, a great deal of anxiety here in Italy, especially in the touristic hotspots like Florence, where I'm speaking to you from, Venice. This is an economy, the Italian one, Julia, that depends for 13% on tourism, nearly 13%. So the fallout of what is for now anecdotal evidence. We've been speaking to hoteliers, people who are in the kind of restaurants uh, that serve tourists in these cities, bar owners, uh, all of these people who serve the tourism industry. They've been saying, look, we're seeing a huge difference already. And just to give you the time frame, the first uh, diagnosed case of, con- of coronavirus was a week ago today. We're on 528 today. The spread has been very quickly. But the point is, Julia, that even faster than the virus itself is the fear of the virus. Uh, That is what spreads fastest of all. And just going back to the point you were making a a moment ago, the Italian government has been at pain. Apologies. It's an ambulance passing by. Nothing to do with coronavirus, but extremely loud. The Italian government has been at pains the last few days to say, look, there is no need to panic, even as they try and contain the virus, uh, with both the Italian authorities and the regional director of the World Health Organization, who pointed out yesterday that four out of five people who contract the coronavirus, that is people who are actually infected, uh, they either show no symptoms or a few symptoms and they recover. So it is very low mortality rates that we're talking about. But it is that very contagious disease with that other point you were making about the fact that it is so new that we simply don't know enough about it. That is spreading so much panic. So, of course, Italian authorities have to try and keep it under control. But already a great deal of criticism from those who depend on tourism who are saying, look, right now we're just keeping people away. And that is not a solution to this problem. We need people to carry on coming to Italy. Those zones that needed to be locked down have been locked down. And we really need to keep the economy afloat. And bear in mind that this is probably one of the European economies that was least able to afford this. It is, was even before coronavirus broke out here so spectacularly last week, teetering on the verge of what would be its fourth recession since 2008, Julia. Yeah, it argues for a more coordinated response, certainly. Uh, Melissa Bell, thank you so much for that and uh, well handled on the sirens in the background there. Great to have you with us. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Health officials in India tell CNN at least 33 people have died this week amid violent protests in New Delhi. Clashes began Monday over a new law that makes it easier for non-Muslims from neighboring countries to gain Indian citizenship. Opponents say the law is biased against Muslims and is contrary to India's secular constitution. Five people are dead in the U.S. state of Wisconsin after a mass shooting at a brewery complex. More than a thousand people were at work on Wednesday afternoon when the shooting began. Police say the 51-year-old gunman was an employee of Molson Coors and later turned the gun on himself. It was a marathon night of CNN town halls in the U.S. state of South Carolina on Wednesday. Democratic presidential candidates made their last pitch to voters with the state's pivotal primary now just two days away. All of the candidates took shots at the Trump administration's handling of the coronavirus outbreak. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but uh, still to come, the coronavirus challenge. Apple's Tim Cook says the situation is fairly dynamic, while Microsoft warns sales won't meet targets. We take a look at the tech sector's exposure. And buyers regret the pharma giant's legal troubles following its Monsanto takeover aren't going away. I took earnings, settlements and forecasts with the CEO. Stay with CNN.
Okay. Ah, got it. Perfect. Perfect. Welcome back to First Move, live from the Stock Exchange on the countdown to the market open this morning. And I can tell you, futures are at pre-market session lows at this stage. All the major averages look set to drop more than 1.5%, adding to the 6% losses we've seen on Wall Street or whether we could see the Dow fall into correction territory at the open this morning. It's not just about the United States, though it's elsewhere. The Brazilian Bovespa tumbled 7% on Wednesday after the first case of coronavirus was detected there. In fact, the MSCI index of emerging markets has fallen to 12-week lows. Bank of America, another analyst out this morning, cutting their forecast for global growth to 2.8% today. It's the lowest growth rate since 2009. Amona Mahajan is a U.S. investment strategist for Allianz Global Investors and joins us now. Great to have you with us. I want to talk about Goldman Sachs. Oh, gosh. Zero earnings growth in 2020 if the virus spreads. Earlier, like last week, I was saying they were too optimistic in their forecast. Yeah. Now I feel like we're a little bit extreme. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We always thought the 10% growth number was high. It was very much back end loaded. Q3 and Q4 were expected to be double digit plus. Which is where consensus yes. is. And I do think bringing that down to what we're saying, 3 to 5% might be more reasonable. The point that Goldman is probably trying to make is that there's very much an unknown out there. If this virus continues to spread in the U.S., we have downside for the, from the consumer, which is the backbone of this economy. That's where I think the risk is. So I see where the probabilities are falling out. We're still in the 3 to 5 percent camp, but, you know, very much a big uncertainty and risk out there. You know, we've seen a number of risk events over the years in, in markets. And I think that analysts at UBS made a great point today, too. And they said the biggest or one of the biggest risks to uh, the environment now, to economic growth, is fear. Yes, yes. And I think, you know, the old adage, markets do not like uncertainty. And that's what we're getting right now. So clearly in China, interestingly enough, the the rate of cases has fallen. And we've actually seen those markets stabilize a bit. But then you had the spread to South Korea, to Japan, to Italy. You know, we cannot stop here in the U.S. Our borders, uh, we cannot stop, you know, those uh, citizens from those economies coming to the U.S. and perhaps spreading the virus here. So I think very much so people are on watch, particularly over the next two to four weeks, if we get that spread or not. I mean, to your point as well, the Chinese saying overnight that, um, or at least in our time, that the peak in, in cases was in yeah. February 15th, yeah. assuming we trust the data and, yes. and the announcements we're getting. So you do, you do raise a good point here, but it's not even just about for, for markets, for stocks. It's about consumer activity. It's about business investment that was yeah. already weak as a result yeah. of yeah. broader tensions and issues here. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I think it'll be interesting to see particularly the ISM data this Friday. You know, right. we got that very weak market manufacturing and services PMI data last Friday. We have ISM for U.S. and China this Friday. And then we have that jobs report coming out next Friday. That will be critical. It'll all be February data. Have businesses, you know, pulled back pulled spending, back. have consumers pulled back as well. And we'll see the jobs unemployment rate as well. I think that'll be I mean, notable. we're seeing markets flirting or in correction territory now all around yeah. the world. I mean, Europe having steep losses today. We could see the Dow open up in, in correction territory. How much more downside could we see here? What kind of levels are you looking at? Yeah, you know, from a technical perspective, we're looking at that 3,000 or 3040 technically on the S&P. Keep in mind, we're down 8% since that February 18th yes. peak. 
today looks like we'll be down another 2%, so we're very much in that 5 to 10% correction range. Now, could we see further downside from here? Think historically back to SARS, where the S&P fell 12%, uh, MSCI China fell 15%, and if you're thinking that this may be worse than SARS, perhaps the correction is a little worse as well. So we do see downside in the near term until we get a little bit of an all clear here in the U.S. from the number of cases, as well as some of the other economies outside of China, I think markets will be on edge. In so what are you saying to, to clients here? Are you saying, yeah. look, if you're invested, um, stay with it. Yeah. Don't necessarily look at opportunities of getting back involved. Just be cautious and wait and see. Is that the message? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. As we started the year, we had this barbell approach uh, from investors, really on one side, large cap tech had performed well. Then the other side, you had the defensive sectors, gold, treasuries, the US dollar, even, you know, REITs and utilities uh, from the S&P side. That side of the barbell continues to work in our mind. We think you can be a little bit more defensive here. Perhaps take some of that tech profit you might have had, put it towards defensives. Uh, at some point, we will get stability and there will be an opportunity to strike. And really, we've seen that historically over and over again with pandemics. So keep that in mind as we're going through the next 5 or 10% downside. Uh, start getting your buying list out, um, but a little early yet. Stick defensive, but, but have that watch list yeah. ready. And I love that you mentioned some of the more defensive outside of stocks as well, yes. like gold and bonds and Absolutely. things. Because great to have you with us. Thank you, there with Some uh, sage advice, here. I think. <laughs> the market open is next. It looks like a tough one. We're expecting uh, steep losses. Yeah. Stay with us. We've got you covered. You're with First Move on CNN. Yeah, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten.
Welcome back to First Move live from the New York Stock Exchange and the opening bell, of course, there this morning. As expected, another tough session to begin for U.S. stocks this morning. We are under pressure, as you can see. I'm just doing the maths here on the Dow. We are in correction territory for the Dow at this stage, so we're talking 10% or more below recent peaks. We've also got the S&P 500 down by some 2%, though it is going to be volatile, I think, for the first few moments of this session. I'll keep an eye on it. This following through from a late-day selling session that we saw in yesterday's trading, following word of a U.S. coronavirus case of unknown origin in California. The Dow transportation sector, I'll just mention that, that fell in correction territory earlier this week too. Now the rush into the relative safety of treasuries continues today too with the yield on the 10-year treasury falling to a fresh all-time low below 1.3%. But it's not just about bonds and equities. What about the energy markets too? Oil is tumbling. Brent crude down some 3.5%. US crude down 4.6%, falling further below that key level of $50 a barrel. Of course, plenty more discussion on what we're seeing in the oil markets coming up later. But for now, let me walk you through some of our big global movers. Shares of Gilead are up after the pharma company announced more trials for its coronavirus drug. Meanwhile, shares of AB InBev falling after the company said it lost $170 million worth of profits during the first two months of the year because of the coronavirus. The world's largest brewer also forecast a 10% decline in first quarter income. Right now, that stock down some 8.5%. Apple, meanwhile, is also under pressure after CEO Tim Cook called the outbreak a challenge at the company's annual shareholder meeting. I don't think there's any surprise there. Three and a half percent lower in the session this morning. And shares of Microsoft also down some four percent after the company said it won't meet its revenue guidance for the current quarter because of the coronavirus. For more on the impact that we're seeing here on Microsoft and Apple and the broader tech giants, Dan Ives joins us now. He's Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. Dan, great to have you with us as always. Microsoft warning today that they won't meet their uh, surprise, uh, their guidance in the personal computing segment, but everything else, and I do think this is important, they left unchanged. Your views here, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's really the view. I mean, no doubt on the supply chain, they're a victim, especially on the PC side, about a third of revenue. But I think the most important telling thing is they could have easily taken overall guidance off the table in terms of enterprise spending, cloud, and they didn't. That's why it's won some bad news, obviously confirmation what we're seeing across the supply chain from Apple as well. The fact that they kept guidance the same for everything else, that's a positive and it speaks to that's really what the street's focused on from a cloud perspective. I mean, it's the third of revenue, so we are going to be sensitive to forecasts and changes to guidance in this specific sector. Just based on what you were saying there, Dan, do you think they're being too cautious here or not cautious enough by leaving everything else steady, given some of the forecasts that we've had, particularly from the likes of Goldman Sachs today? Because there's real caution coming from them about the impact on U.S. companies. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a quagmire for these companies because they have to see it in terms of what they're seeing in their pipelines and their supply chains. And obviously, if they're going to have to take off guidance, you know, if it doesn't, going to meet their forecast. But, but I do think you have to separate what's going on here between the supply chain and demand and, and ultimately what we're going to see in terms of, 
you know, core demand impacts for enterprise and for moving to the cloud. Thus far, I can tell you even over the last week, we haven't seen any changes in buying behaviors in terms of these larger tech companies. And that's why right now for investors, it's no doubt there's a lot of fear going on here. But I think you continue to, if you look at the winners, the secular trends, and if the demand doesn't change for the long term, you know, we continue to be firmly bullish on names like Microsoft and Apple. Yeah, you make such a great point about the timing impact here for the supply chain. I know you're breaking it down. If we talk about Apple now, because I think this is going to be key for investors today too, it comes down to what are we seeing in terms of getting the supply chain up and running in March, in April, or in May. And the more staggering we see, the greater the impact. Yeah, I think I almost put in a a base best worst case scenario. Best case the supply chain really starts to get up and running by March, end of March. At that point, 5G phones basically stay on target, you know, if, if you look at it. If you look at base case, we're probably looking sort of early April, mid-April. Worst case would be late May. And at that point, that's where 5G phones could get pushed past holiday. So that's why right now what the streets laser focused on is the timing of the supply chain getting back to where it is a normalization pattern. And I think if you start to get there in that March or early April time frame, I think you'll see a bounce back in Apple. Because again, it comes down to our thesis, it's supply chain driven, not demand driven for Apple, even though obviously a lot of nervousness. At what point though, to your earlier suggestion about separating the supply chain impact versus demand impact, do we actually see demand destruction? for Apple? Yeah, I think at that point, it really comes down to the demand destruction. If you start to see this go on beyond a quarter outside of China, that's where it really becomes a broader demand destruction. Remember, China, that's 20% really of their core iPhone market. And it really comes down to that's why they're really almost a poster child for the situation yet again, you know, in terms of China, because it's not just supply chain, it's the demand. So, so right now, for investors, it's really focused on demand destruction in China. And we think at this point that's very contained in terms of demand destruction, which is why we continue to view it more timing rather than uh, oh, uh, what I would say is a dent to the long-term bull thesis for our 5G supercycle for Apple. When I think of you, I think of a tech bull medium term, longer term, you like the story. And this has been one of the key pillars for the broader markets and the rally that we've seen in these big tech giants. Are you still underlying this comfortable sticking with these stocks and just riding out what is yet another exogenous shock? And it's tough to gauge how big the impact is going to be ultimately. And at what point will you go, you know what, actually, I'm really uncomfortable here. We need to take some money out of this. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and, and I'd say it's a question I'm again from a lot of investors. I can tell you, look, in covering tech stocks 20 years in Wall Street, especially being very bullish over the last decade on tech names, a lot of exogenous events, you know, a lot of Armageddon-like events at the time, we view it as, is there demand destruction? Does the thesis stay the same? And are the winners going to prevail on the other side? If that's all, yes. Then ultimately to us, we stay bullish on it. So that's why I continue to do, obviously, a lot of work in the supply chain demand. But to me, I view this still more as an opportunity to own the winners 
and a hand-holding exercise rather than the start of what I view as a secular, uh, you know, Armageddon-like negative view of these names. And we're definitely not on that uh, area. Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. And um, actually, Dan, in your note, you pointed out that none of this takes away from the tragedy and the human impact of this event. And it brought it home to me once again. And I want to make that point, too, that we have this discussion, but we don't want to detract from the, from the tragedy that it is. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Dan Ives Thank there. Thank you. Well, let me just give you a look at what we're seeing at this moment for U.S. markets. We've bounced a little bit over the last uh, five to ten minutes or so for the down currently down some 1.5% as you can see. The Nasdaq though under pressure. We've just been talking about the tech sector in particular at this moment down some 2.2%. Very different feel to what we saw in yesterday's session but volatility. I'll reiterate the name of the game here. We're shaping up for a tough session. We've got you covered. We're back after this. You're with First Move. with a look at what we're seeing for the price action now in U.S. markets. Steep losses for all the majors at this moment. Tech stocks leading the decline. We are off just over 2%. The Dow and the Nasdaq have now tumbled into correction territory. What that means is that they've fallen some 10% or more from their most recent highs. The S&P 500 actually just on the cusp of correction at territory too. I want to show you what we've seen in Europe as well because we've also seen steep losses in the session there too. The uh, French market's underperforming at this moment, but all of them, as you can see there, off more than 3% for the majors. All right, let me bring you up to speed with today's boardroom brief. Apple CEO Tim Cook announced the tech giant will open its first retail store in India next year, jump-starting the iPhone maker's move Cook said Apple will also start selling its products online in the country this year. Previously, Apple sold its devices through stores in India run by local partners. Startup Clearview AI says its entire client list was stolen by hackers. The company compiles billions of photos from popular sites like Facebook and Instagram and uses them for facial recognition technology. The firm has been under criticism after investigations revealed their clients included law enforcement and police agencies. Bayer, the German agro-pharma giant, says selling assets or borrowing to cover the cost of litigation related to the weed killer Roundup are worst-case scenarios. The company said settlement talks are continuing with thousands of plaintiffs who allege the weed killer causes cancer. The legal issues were inherited from Bayer's $63 billion takeover of Monsanto. Earlier today, I caught up with Bayer's CEO after they reported full-year earnings and began by asking how close they are to a legal settlement. Listen in. Well, Julia, uh, we have been uh, working quite diligently with the dual path strategy uh, that we had embarked on on one side, uh, of course, continuing to litigate the cases that we have lost in first instance. And on the other side, uh, we continue to be uh, very constructively engaged uh, in the mediation discussions under the leadership of uh, Ken Feinberg. 
Uh, and uh, you know, to the extent uh, that uh, you also uh, hear that uh, you know, people are working with each other, uh, you can assume that uh, negotiations continue to go on. And as long as continuation of the negotiations is warranted, uh, you know, there's a chance to come to uh, an acceptable result, I would say, uh, for, for us at the company. You've also acknowledged, I think, for the first time that what we could see here is the need to sell assets, to sell fresh equity, even borrow to, to cover the ultimate cost here. I appreciate it's difficult to gauge at this stage, but is there anything that you can say here to allay investors' fears? Yes, uh, I think it's very important uh, to put uh, the, uh, uh, the the narrative that you just mentioned into perspective. That's part of our annual mm. report and our risk report. Uh, it has no bearing whatsoever uh, when it comes to uh, the, uh, the the current situation. Uh, it describes, uh, uh, I think, uh, what could be done even in cases that uh, only have a remote likelihood of occurrence. But uh, we have to describe the entire universe uh, of potential outcomes yeah, and then activities that would be triggered by those outcomes. Your forecasts, sales, earnings, free cash flow, you're expecting a rise in, in 2020. Tell me where this is coming from, because I do think we spend perhaps too much time focusing on the crop sciences business when a lot of the focus also needs to be played on, on what you're doing in, in the farmer side too. Yeah, we've seen uh, last year actually growth contributions uh, of all of our businesses. Uh, we have uh, uh, reached uh, a fairly nice growth of about 3.5%. Uh, which I think is quite good given the circumstances and you know, some of the market uh, uh, environments that uh, our businesses were exposed to, in particular in crop. And for 2020, we look at just about the same growth rate uh, across all of our businesses. So uh, pharma is going to grow by just about 3 to 4%. Uh, the crop business is going to grow at a similar pace. Uh, and our consumer health business uh, has come back to peer growth a year ahead of our original plans. So uh, top line momentum uh, is good and bottom line momentum uh, is actually following uh, to a greater extent uh, due to the benefits that we are going to reap from uh, the contributions that come out of synergies, the contributions that come out of our structural measures. So our earnings are going to grow quite a bit faster. What I think was quite surprising for many, and I know it's tough to gauge at this stage, is that your forecasts don't include predictions and impact here for the coronavirus outbreak. Can I just ask what impact you're already seeing across global operations, particularly in China? Yeah, uh, that, that's a very, very good question. And uh, you know, we have been discussing about uh, what to do and what is uh, you know, the best information that we can give uh, our shareholders. You know, and truth to be told, the situation continues to be very, very volatile. Uh, you know, the, the news of the day you know, changes the perspective of the week, yeah, which is then a reflection mm -hmm. of what is going to be uh, you know, the, 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 the most likely outcome for the months, and it changes day by day. Uh, where I sit, uh, I would say the following. Um, we uh, uh, are, uh, in, in some areas, we will for sure see an exposure uh, of our business uh, to the coronavirus because we see less traffic uh, going into hospitals, uh, but at the same time, uh, we uh, uh, have actually resumed full, op full operation uh, of our manufacturing base uh, in China, be it our pharma business uh, in Beijing or be it our uh, uh, crop uh, operations. So from that perspective, uh, things are going well. 
uh, we have uh, only one single reported uh, corona case uh, in our uh, workforce um, in China. And we'll see uh, how things are going to evolve over the next four, four weeks so that uh, with our quarter one communication, uh, we can give some specificity uh, and something useful in terms of guiding uh, the remainder of the year based on the experience of the first quarter. But right now, it's really too early. Yeah, And on top of that, there's, of course, some negative effects. There are also always some positive effects uh, that will you know, help uh, inform the view uh, of uh, the full year as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting as a, as a leader of a, of a global business, too, as we look at the spread of this around the world, particularly into Europe now as well. Are you taking any precautions for workers, for supply chains, at this stage, or are you simply, to your point, given the level of uncertainty here, just waiting and watching? Yeah. So as, as many other companies, I guess by now, uh, most, uh, almost all companies, uh, we have put together a, a crisis management team that has been in place for quite some time. Our crisis mm. management team uh, is monitoring the situation. Truth to be told, uh, right after uh, your, our chat, uh, I will be uh, sitting together with uh, our board of management uh, uh, and uh, then discuss uh, what to do going forward. Also in terms of maybe stepping up our precautionary measures in particular due to the fact that you mentioned uh, that uh, the disease and the virus has now come uh, into Europe, uh, mostly through Italy. So there will be mm. probably a few more things that we will put in motion. Uncertainty, a takeaway, but also that Chinese operations are up and running. Worth reiterating there. All right, let me give you a look at what we're seeing for U.S. markets early on in the session here. We are in correction territory. All three majors now down 10% or more from their peaks. It's not just stocks, though. Oil as well, firmly under pressure, as you can see. Real global growth concerns here. WTI down more than 5%. More analysis after this. Stay with Sony at CNN. As we were discussing before the break, oil prices under severe pressure in the session. WTI down some 4.4%. Not helping sentiment today. Goldman Sachs has cut its 2020 oil demand forecast in half. Matt Egan joins us now. Matt, we were talking about Goldman Sachs earlier and the quite aggressive reduction in growth estimates for the U.S. markets. What are they saying about the oil markets here too? Give us more detail. Well, Julia, this is easily the biggest demand shock facing the oil market since the 2008 financial crisis. The, there really is palpable 
fear right now that the coronavirus could spark a severe slowdown or even a recession in the United States and elsewhere around the world. And so we're seeing that play out in the stock market, but also in the energy markets. Uh, U.S. oil prices down another 5% today, 13% on the week. Uh, they're down 25% just since the recent peak in January. Now, you mentioned Goldman Sachs. They are cutting their 2020 demand forecast. Um, they now only see 600,000 barrels per day of demand growth for 2020, a really big decline from earlier. But you know what? They actually are not the most negative here. Um, FGE, the uh, consulting firm, uh, they say that they think there will be no growth in demand for oil this year. And I, I think that makes some sense given uh, what's happened here. Um, you know, whenever there's a, a slowdown or a recession, oil always takes a hit on the demand side. But the nature of the coronavirus, I think, really amplifies that. I mean, let's remember, this all started in China. China's not just the world's number two economy, but it's the largest importer of oil. It's really the epicenter of demand growth. And the coronavirus shut down large parts of this economy. Uh, flights have uh, many flights have been canceled, uh, not just to China, but to, to Korea, um, also in Europe. And so that means there's less demand for motor gasoline, less demand for diesel and, of course, for jet fuel. Um, so all of this is putting enormous pressure on OPEC to really come to the rescue when they meet next week in Vienna. Uh, the oil bulls are, of course, hoping that OPEC and Russia, they deliver really decisive uh, production cuts. And, and in the past, uh, um, OPEC's actions have uh, been successful by putting a floor beneath oil prices. But, Julia, yes. we should um, remember, though, that this is different. Unlike those other oil bear markets, this one is not about excess, excess supply. It's all about demand destruction. And those kinds of sell-offs are much trickier to resolve because of the, the uncertainty involved. Oil very much at the heart of the butterfly effect here, to your point. Transport, global growth, demand, particularly from China. It's a great point. Matt Egan, great to have you with us. A final look at what we're seeing for U.S. stocks at this moment. Correction territory for all three majors. Plenty more to come in a couple of hours. But for now, you've been with First Move. Time to go make yours. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.